0: Good morning friends So happy that you 're here worshiping together with the saints, lifting up our great God and Savior we 're going to continue in our in our study of the theology of the cross this morning so if you have a Bible i 'd encourage you to turn to mark chapter fourteen. But as we think about or begin to think about these things uh, I don't have to mention this to you, but uh, the struggle to pray effectively is the bane of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, I've never met a Christian who says, oh, yeah, my prayer life is wonderful. It's awesome. Uh, usually, it's, it's not that. It's, the report is, oh, yeah, I, I need to improve my prayer life. I struggled praying as I should. I mean, this is common testimony of the Christian. But the goal to be a praying person is one of the most challenging in the Christian life, isn't it? To pray as we ought, to to pray as those famous prayer warriors of Christian history, to pray as Jesus did, to pray as Paul did, is a desire of the heart of every true Christian. And yet, it seems elusive to us. It requires spiritual discipline. My personal uh, worship time, my quiet time this year, I'm praying through, uh, praying through, I'm I'm reading through the sermons of John Flavel, a a long-gone Puritan, and his his sermons are wonderfully encouraging, challenging, but so good for the soul, and one that I've recently read uh, has to do with this prayer that we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark 14. And much of what I'm going to be saying this morning comes from sermon sermons, and so if you have a problem with what I'm saying, you can blame it on Flavel, all right? That's how I'm going to go with this. But it, uh, it really, honestly, it is such an encouragement. If, if you have a need for a direction in your quiet times, uh, reading sermons of, of past men of God is, is a fruitful time. Uh, pick up. Spurgeon's sermons, pick up Flavel's sermon, pick up Owen's sermons, pick up any godly man's sermon and they're they're a a refreshment and strength to your soul. But on the night before Jesus went to the cross he was he was tying up loose ends as it were like you and I might do before we go on a long trip. Uh, For example he established the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be an ongoing spiritual encouragement to his people, to us, who would follow him. Then, according to John 17, he prayed to his father for his immediate disciples, and, amazingly enough, he prayed for you and me the night before he was crucified. And then finally, before he was betrayed and arrested, he prayed for himself as he prepared his heart for the climax, for the purpose for which he came, which is to die for the sins of his people, to, to redeem us. So he was tying up these loose ends, and it ends with this particular prayer here in Mark 14. The very next event was his arrest. And so here we see the, the final preparation of Jesus, our Savior, as he was about to go to the cross for us. Listen with, as I read this, this prayer from... Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough for the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. So this was the last step Of preparation that Jesus took before he went to the cross and oh how instructive it is to us so let's look at this prayer of Christ if you will Um, when, when you want to become acquainted with God you read the Bible right we know that we're Christians but when you want to really deepen your understanding of the heart of God you study the prayers of Jesus and so we're gonna look at this today and I hope to go this is my my goal my, my hope is that we leave here today with a more clear, a better, deeper understanding of the heart of God for us, his people, based on the prayer of Jesus here. So we see the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, the High Priestly Prayer in John 17, and this Gethsemane Prayer in Mark 14, all teaching us important things about God. The heart of God is revealed in the prayers of Jesus. Those prayers give us a glimpse into the very inner workings of God's soul. Since we're looking at a theology of the cross in the in present time, verses four, uh, chapters 14 through 16 in Mark, this is a very important passage to consider. What can we learn about God's view of the cross as we look at this prayer? This is the theology of the cross. Jesus' prayer speaks to this theology for us. And so what we can learn, first of all, is from the place of his prayer, where he prayed. Gethsemane, this is the Gethsemane prayer. This garden, Gethsemane, was near the city of Jerusalem, literally right outside the city walls. Jerusalem, of course, as you know, had 12 gates through which to enter the city. The gate through which the arresting mob and Judas took Jesus was called, now see if this strikes a note in your heart, the sheep gate. The gate through which the mob and Judas took Jesus from Gethsemane into the temple courts was called the sheep gate. Now, this was the same gate that was used to drive all the sheep through for the Passover sacrifice. This gate was close to the temple, close to the residences of the high priest. This gate led out of the city into the garden of Gethsemane. So taking Jesus through this gate had a significant particular importance and meaning. God orchestrated that this particular gate be near the Garden of Gethsemane in order to fulfill the type seen in the path that the sheep took to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. So the lambs that were taken through this gate every single year at Passover was the same gate that the Lamb of God was taken through just prior to his execution. Coincidental? Not hardly. So between the city and the garden also ran a small creek called the Kidron Brook. This particular brook that Jesus crossed to get into the garden on this night is the same one that King David referred to in Psalm 110. He said this, He, referring to the Messiah, will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. On the way, either to or from Gethsemane, is this brook. And Jesus stooped down to take a drink, to fulfill prophecy, even as remote as that. Amazing. So Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane because that is where he had customarily met with his disciples, including Judas. He had taken them there to to pray with them, to teach them, to just spend time with them. He went there on this particular night to be sure to be arrested at the appointed time because Judas knew he would be there. So the place of his prayer was important. Secondly, the time of his prayer, or timing, you could say. The timing of this prayer came after the celebration of the last Passover, And the institution of the Lord's Supper, which happens to be the Christian Passover, our Passover, right? The the, the Jewish Passover celebrated the the exodus from Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh. That's their Passover celebration. Our Passover celebration is the Lord's Supper, which celebrates our release or, or exodus from the tyranny of sin over us because of the blood of the lamb. So Jesus went into the garden somewhere between nine and 10 at night, they say, so he could spend a couple hours in prayer to prepare himself to go to the cross. Facing a daunting series of events that we know of, Jesus desired to be in the best frame of mind as possible, as you can imagine why. So he spent time in the garden, praying, communing with his father, preparing his heart. What an excellent pattern this is for us. What is your habit when facing daunting things? Uh, How how do you prepare yourself for the battles you face, for the trials that you're going through, whether it be in your job, in your home, uh, in your private life? Do you go to that quiet place like Jesus did in Gethsemane? Thirdly, the content, the place, the timing, and now the content of his prayer. And here's where we're going to spend most of our time. The content of his prayer is amazing. What did he pray about? This is especially informative regarding a theology of the cross. The content of his prayer has presented some challenges to Bible students, pastors, scholars throughout the years. Jesus prayed in Mark 14, 36, which I just read for you. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. If Jesus prayed for a couple hours, there must have been more than he prayed than that sentence. But this is the sentence, the only sentence that's recorded. Why? Evidently, the Holy Spirit wants to rest on this for us. He wants us to think about this part of his prayer. Certainly, he prayed about other things, but this is what the Holy Spirit wants you and me to think about. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What can we gain from this amazing prayer? These words are full of passion and reveal to us some important things about the nature of prayer, but more importantly, the nature of God in Christ Jesus. The creator of the universe was the one praying this prayer. We could look at Jesus' use of the title Abba and there's beneficial things to consider there. We could look at Jesus' comment that God can do anything and how important is that to know? All important. But let's look at the request today. Father, remove this cup from me. So what is the cup that Jesus was referring to? The cup was a reference to all that Jesus had to endure during the next 15 hours. He had to endure physical and spiritual sufferings. The reference to a cup in Scripture, the word the cup, is frequently used when trials or hardships are being faced or experienced. It's called the cup. In fact, in the King James Version of Isaiah 51:17, it refers to intense, suffer, intense suffering as the cup of trembling. Uh, the ESV calls it the cup of staggering. And was Jesus staggering? Was was there a trembling in Jesus on this night in Gethsemane? Oh yeah, an amazing amount. So these are intended to show us, these words, the cup, are intended to show us the intensity of Jesus' sufferings. Not only when he was crucified, but everything leading up to that moment of crucifixion, including this night in the garden. And then he says, The the strange words, the confusing words, really, remove this cup from me. Now, I want you to think a little bit about this with me this morning, because I think there's benefit in thinking about it. Jesus was asking, it seems, for the possibility of bypassing his suffering. Remove this cup, this trembling, this staggering experience that I'm about to have. The wrath of man, the wrath of God combined to to create this horrendous experience that Jesus was about to go through. He knew it was coming, and he, it seems, was seeking an alternative. This is where we must stop, think, pray a little bit, ask for God's insight to comprehend what is exactly going on in this amazing and revealing moment. Think about what's being asked here. The Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, asking for release from a commitment he made in eternity past. That's problematic for us, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. If Jesus is God, then, then he was part of the planning of the very event he was requesting leave from. How could Christ, the second person of the Godhead, ask the Father to be dismissed from something he himself had planned? to be dismissed from the only thing that could make our salvation possible. The, the covenant of redemption was at stake here. What is the covenant of redemption? It is that time or that, that covenant that was made before time between the members of the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, covenanted to each other, promised each other to do everything necessary to accomplish Our redemption your redemption so you see what's on the line here in John 12 and John 18 Jesus acknowledges that the reason he entered the human race was to die for the sins of his people that's why I came he said twice this was God the son's role to die on the cross this is why he came this critical role was necessary to accomplish your forgiveness and mine, to accomplish our reconciliation with our Creator, to accomplish our redemption from sin and eternal punishment. This is why he came. What do you mean, give me leave? Does this request of Jesus mean that he had second thoughts about going through with the plan? I know I have second thoughts about things, but God... God doesn't have second thoughts, like, oops, no. So how do we explain this? How do we reconcile the sovereignty and divine providence of God with what we're reading? All that had been and was yet to be written in Scripture concerning the eternal purposes of God to save mankind, we read from Genesis through Revelation, could now be seen as just a lot of big talk. Oh, I'm going to save my people. Oh, yeah, sure you are like the athlete who brags about how he's going to dominate the opponent until the game starts or the match begins. At first glance, this seems like Jesus wished he had never agreed to such a plan. So are we seeing this correctly? Well, I'm going to relieve some of your tension, not if that's our conclusion. (laughs) If our conclusion is, yeah, Jesus is trying to get out of it, then we're not seeing this correctly. Thankfully, there are other options here, good text-honoring options, and I can say based on the Word of God and the nature of God that Christ wasn't having second thoughts about the eternal plan of God. He wasn't saying, oh, I've bitten off more than I can chew. He wasn't saying, whoops. No. Here are a few theological thoughts that might help us with this problem. First, and I think most importantly, is the two natures of Christ. The two natures of Christ. Although Jesus was God, he was also human. 100% God, 100% human. This is a profound and important theology. The dual natures of Christ. The intermingling of the divine and human natures within the womb of a young lady named Mary is a miracle of miracles, the co-mingling of the divine and human. This is why at times we see Jesus in the Gospels surprised by things, like the faith as a centurion surprised him. And in the very next story, he knows exactly what people are thinking, thinking in the room. At times he acted as God, other times he acted as, as man. Jesus' life was filled with the intermixture of the divine and human experience. At times, he was the Almighty One, calming the sea in a storm. He said, be still. What was he doing literally 30 seconds before that? Sleeping because he was tired. God, man, co-mingled in the boat. <laughs> By the way, he didn't need a boat. He proved that he walked on the water. But he was in the boat. Asleep, and yet in the next moment, he said, "Peace, be still." And a glass. So this mixture is awe-inspiring. It's certainly mysterious, but it's profound, isn't it? It's worship-inspiring. Here's what we're looking at in the prayer: this commingling, this intermingling between the two natures of Christ, God and man. We could say that in the garden, Jesus was praying according to his human nature and then finished his prayer with his divine nature. Not my will, but yours be done. His human nature didn't want to experience the pain and agony associated with the cross and all things leading up to it. I mean, for Pete's sake, we pray that our hangnails get better. This is what humans pray about. Some well-known commentators suggest that this prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane was a short a short conflict of nature. Not, not physical nature, but his human versus divine nature. But Jesus was quickly restored to this divine reason in the same breath when he prayed, not my will, yours be done. We need to remind ourselves here an important truth that Jesus was sinless and so, There was nothing sinful about his display of human frailty. It's okay to be human. It's okay to be human even for us. This was not a demonstration of sin. In fact, we might see that this was a necessary part of his real and painful suffering for the sins of humanity. This indeed was ordained. This struggle in the garden was ordained by God before time. He was part of the prophecy of his heartache and suffering that we see in Isaiah 53. He is actually just like us, Hebrews 2:14, with flesh and blood and human emotion. But the second thing I, I want you to theological thing I want you to consider, and <clears throat> this is coming at this request from a 180 degree different angle, is the complete understanding of what the cup Jesus was referring to, a complete understanding. Although we know that a cup is a difficult and troubling experience, we may not know exactly all of what the troubling experience Jesus was referring to. We know certainly it had to do with the pain of the cross. We knew it had to do with his concerns over separation with his heavenly Father. Was there more? For example, if part of the cup was the weakness of his flesh that I've just discussed, or, or the point of skipping out on the assignment, that, that, that desire, is it possible then that the prayer may have been that his flesh does not win the battle of obedience? Is that maybe what deliver me is all about? Remove this cup from me? This cu- cup of human frailty? I wonder. Because it says in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 that God the Father heard his prayer and answered. So what have we thought all of our lives, as Christians at least, concerning this request? I've been raised thinking that the request was about avoidance of the cross, which may have been. But it also makes sense that this prayer was about avoiding the consequences of human frailty in this moment of turning his back on what he came to do. Lord, keep me from that. If that was his prayer, God answered it, didn't he? Yeah, because we sit here redeemed. We sit here saved from our sin. We sit here forgiven. Had he not gone to the cross, that would not be the case. His prayers were answered. Now let's look next at the manner. That was the content. Let's look at the manner of his prayer. It says he prayed alone. He prayed alone. His disciples were too tired to join him. He asked them to pray while he went on by himself, but they couldn't even stay awake. On this occasion, he didn't want to pray with them, but he wanted them to pray, just not with him personally in his space. And we can learn that there will be times in our lives when we must pray alone. There are times when your prayers must stay between you and God. Even to the absence of your spouse. This is one of those occasions in the life of Christ. He prayed alone. Next, he prayed humbly. We can see this just by his physical demeanor. He was on the ground. He was on his knees. He was on his face. He was prostrate, fell flat, humbling his posture, also humbling with his words, not my will but yours. He prayed humbly. Although, friends, Christian friends, we are encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace, there is no place for demanding anything from God, is there? No. Jesus prayed humbly. Thirdly, he prayed repeatedly. A lot of times I think that, that if I pray once, God's smart enough to remember my prayers, right? I've said it once, I mean, how many times do I need to say it to an infinite intellect? Evidently, repeatedly. So this was not your typical popcorn prayer. Uh, God help me today, uh, get us safe to Seattle, uh, you know, help me with my hangnail, like I said. No, this was an intense wrestling, repeated, praying with everything in him type of prayer. He prayed repeatedly. He, he went back to his prayer spot, went to check on his disciples, went back to his prayer spot at least three times. Jesus himself in his teaching said that the key to answered prayer is to be importunate. to to, to keep after it, to keep knocking. God wants to hear our repeated prayers, which is what Jesus was doing here. He prayed then finally with exceptional passion, and that comes right out of what I just said. He, He had exceptional passion. For this time with his father, we struggled to pray for 10 minutes without distraction. Here Jesus was praying for hours with exceptional passion. Now let's look at the example that we find here in Christ, in his prayer. As I have stated a couple times during this foray into Mark's theology of the cross, that theology must be practical or it's bad theology. Well, let's look now at this theology and how it can be applied to us. This theology of the cross that I've been explaining to you for the last... 20 minutes or so, let's look at how it can be applied to us. First of all, prayer is intended to be a source of help in times of need. Prayer is intended to be a source of help in times of need. Prayer has been designed by God as a gift to His children to be used at all times, but especially when they're hurting. Especially when they're hurting. Psalm 50, verse 15 helps us understand this a bit. Says in verse 15, call upon me, God is speaking, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. So here's how it works. We were created to be dependent beings, right? Dependent on our creator. And when we cease to be dependent is when we begin to sin. And so As we exercise and practice dependency, God wants us, God expects us to come with him, come to him with our requests. And when we come, it's a humble approach to God, a dependent approach to God, with full expectation that he wants to bless us, his children. And the verse said, bring your requests to me, and I will answer them and glorify myself. So, how is God glorified? in answering our requests by meeting our needs. He is a need-meeting God. He is one who desires to meet the needs of His people. And so when we come, we acknowledge our dependence and run to Him because He is the dependent one, the supplier of our need, if you will, and He gets the glory. We get the benefit. Do you see it? This is what we're learning here in the prayer of Christ. It's intended to be a source of help in times of need. This was Jesus' darkest moment in his earthly experience, and what do we see? Him in prayer. As much as God desires us to come to Him at all times, He especially is receptive to our approaches in prayer when we are hurting. Who created your emotions? Who created your personality? Who created you? God did, with all the expectations that go with all those things in your relationship with God. Yes, he calls us, he draws us into communion with Himself through our circumstances so that we are ushered into his presence because we know instinctively as Christians that's where our needs will be met. So since God has designed prayer to be a great support and encouragement throughout our earthly pilgrimage, we don't want to try to navigate our trials and sorrows without prayer. It's not the old German, you know, stiff upper lip, bear down, try hard, never quit approach. No. It's a dependent, humble approach is what this is after. Prayer is the language of God's children. When we cry out to God for help, our pains are lessened. In the same way that our friends help us lift our heavy burdens when we share them, God is even more able to support and encourage us during these times of difficulty. And so one thing that we can benefit from our trials, our temptations, our struggles, is they teach us how to pray, if nothing else. Next we see, by way of example, Christ's example, prayer is intended to be done in private at times. Prayer is intended to be done at private, at times. So, as close as Peter, James, and John were to Christ, they were good friends, uh, the Lord left them for solitude with his Father in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me here. There are times when solitude is the best option, but also uh, fellowship with the Christian in times of prayer is sweet, meaningful, and important. We need to gather like we do on Sunday mornings to pray with one another, like we do in our small groups to pray with one another, like we do on our monthly prayer meetings. We need that, we ought to participate in that. But there are times when you need to be alone in your closet with your savior, with the God of heaven. John Flavel said this concerning this issue, the company of a good man is good But it ceases to be so when it hinders the enjoyment of better company. If someone says that to you personally and then goes stands with somebody else in the room, that's a problem. Um, But if they say that and then retreat to the closet of prayer, isn't that a wonderful thing? For both parties, it is. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus said, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What a blessing. Next, prayer may seem to be ignored by God, but... Prayer may seem to be ignored by God, but as much as the prayer of Jesus seems to have been ignored by God on the surface we find out in Hebrews that the Father was listening and answering. Even it wasn't how Jesus' human nature may have wanted it, unless he was praying to be strengthened in his divine nature so that his human nature wouldn't fail, as I discussed a minute ago. But what this teaches us about what what seems to be God ignoring our prayers uh, is to resist discouragement when things are uncertain, Resist discouragement when things are uncertain. When we pray during our difficult times, God's silence may trouble us. Has it ever troubled you, God's silence? We believe that our perspective is good, we believe it's God-glorifying, but it seems he remains quiet. But many times it's in his quietness that lies the solution. Nothing falls outside the sovereign oversight of God and our perspective is limited. So he sees all, knows all, controls all. We do none of that. We pray to align our heart and mind with God's and learn to trust him completely in the silence. Do we really want to be orchestrating our own lives? I've given up that a long time ago. I tried that for a while. Never worked well, orchestrating my own life. No, we don't wanna be those who die trying to orchestrate our own lives. We wanna release that early and often. No, Jesus didn't pout or complain about the silence of God. No, he put himself under God's sovereign oversight, trusting that God was present, he was wise, he was working, and he was committed to the good of his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, 23 reflects this attitude. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Now listen to the psalmist's response to this silence of God. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. How's our attitude when we're met with silence? When it seems our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Is it this? Or, or do doubts begin to arise about God's love for you? about your love for him. Even though God the Father did not grant Jesus' request, in fact, if it was to release from the cross, he did answer, didn't he? Jesus' request to strengthen him, enable him, support him through it all, he did. Because he did it. (laughs) It happened. Jesus did die on the cross. One of our problems is that we are bound to time and space and cannot see the future effects of any of our prayer requests. We seem to think that if God would answer this request, it would be good. And to avoid that, it would be good. And so we have all these things worked out in our minds when we come to prayer, right? God, I've got the idea here for you. If you'd pay attention, we could we can get through this together. Well, God doesn't work that way. He he is the one orchestrating the events of our lives. He's the one who's planned them from before time, before we took one breath every day of our life was structured, was planned according to Psalm 139. So what do we do? We need to resist making judgment on what seems to be unanswered prayer. God is fulfilling His purposes. What is prayer? Is it a time for you to enlighten God on what He doesn't know? No. It's a time to align your heart with His. That's what prayer is about. We make judgments based on what we can feel, what we can see. We struggle to live by faith, especially in difficult times. And we must respond to our circumstances like Abraham did his. What did he do? When his path was difficult to follow, Genesis tells us that he believed against hope and gave glory to God. God knows what he's doing, in other words. I'll follow him to the end. You might be tempted to think that God is angry with you for some past sin or some present attitude or or habit. You may feel unloved or unimportant, but none of these things are true, according to Scripture. God is love. God, our Heavenly Father, loves us, has a perfect plan for our lives, which includes, listen, God's plan for our lives, for your life, includes times of uncertainty, times of hardship, it includes death but will result in our sanctification and joy and God's glory this will work out even though it may not be how you want it to work out or how it may best benefit you quote unquote Psalm thirty-one, twenty-two. I had said in my alarm I am cut off from your sight you ever feel that way God doesn't even know I exist I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. He hears. He knows. And he will fulfill what is best. What is best. God may, in fact, delay his answer to us, even though we may feel our prayers never made it past the ceiling. Next prayer reveals the heart of the one praying. Listen to this, prayer reveals the heart of one praying. What good things we learn from Jesus Christ in this prayer, Mark 14, amazing. We learn of his commitment to the plan of God. We learn of his commitment to prayer, his commitment to communion with his heavenly Father in the darkest times. We learn these things from his prayer. We learn of his commitment to obedience. We learn much about the character and nature of Jesus Christ in this prayer. What could we learn about ourselves if we could see each other's prayer life? What could I learn about you, or you, me, if we could actually see each other's prayers lo- prayer life? What, what do you pray about? Might be something good to track in a journal or something like that. What do I pray about? And then reflect on how that reveals something about who you are, about your nature. Maybe a good practice. Finally, Jesus' prayer gives us hope for our heartaches. I don't need to say this to anybody over 30. I'll say it to people that are 30 or under, life is difficult. Life is difficult. It's not intended to be a walk on the yellow brick road, on rose petals through the garden. That is not the intent of life or the purpose. Difficulty, pain, sorrow, and struggle is what life is about. And guess what? Those things are what make a strong Christian. Take it all to Jesus and leave it with him is the encouragement. He knows the path you're walking. He's designed the path you're walking. He will support you and strengthen you for that path he's given you to walk. Why? How does he know about all this? He's been there. He's been there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text that reveals us, um, reveals to us the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the heart of our Creator, the heart of one who loved us so much that he came to this planet to be one of us, committed to taking on our sin on Calvary. Lord, encourage us now to, to rethink our view of prayer, to... Be encouraged by the nature and character of Christ revealed here in this text. Thank you, Father, for including this in the scriptures. Bless us now as we go our way and contemplate these wonderful truths. Amen.